can nonprofit organizations not make a profit? How do they survive? That's a good one. This is another nonprofit 101 question. So, yeah, this is a very common thing, especially in organizations like people that have this idea that they want to start a nonprofit, either people that have this idea and they want to do it and they don't know anything about it, or people that are outside the sector and like have no experience with the sector at all. That's a a very common question. Don't you think it's like one of the biggest myths out there like that? And, you know, you hear that's a myth and then like the myth of, oh, staff who... Um, you know, you can't have like, you don't have paid staff. You're a nonprofit. It's like, I, I it's bizarre to me, but there is actually, <laughs> really? I've never heard that oh one. yes. Oh, I've gotten that before. Oh, wow. That's no, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. So, okay. So yeah, Stacey just said it's absolutely a myth. So, so the, the word nonprofit is just a really stupid term. Yes. And, and again, we talked about this in another question today was about um, jargon. It's accounting jargon and, and the word profit itself has to do specifically with the ownership of the organization being able to extract any additional revenue over expenses. So if you, if you, in a typical business, if you make a million dollars and you spend $500,000, that means the owners of the business get to take home that $500,000 or reinvest it in the business or, you know, whatever else. So that, that $500, the $500,000 is like up for grabs, right? Right. In a nonprofit, what, what the rule is, is that, so who's the owner? This is my answer is like, who's the owner of a nonprofit? And I love asking that questions because people are like, uh, I don't know. Because the answer to the question is America. Exactly. So the public, you, right? right? The general public. Right. Yeah. The general public yeah. of the United States. If you've, if your organization is in the United States and you've gotten your 501c3, the IRS, the owner of your nonprofit is the United States of America, like the entire public, the everybody right. that lives here. Everybody right. that lives here owns your nonprofit. So the only way to ever pay that profit back out to them is to continue to do your mission. So in a practical sense, what that means is, Board members don't get to take a cut of any extra money that's left over at the end of the year. The executive director doesn't get to take a cut of any money that's left over at the end of the year. That doesn't mean that you can't pay them. Right. You have to pay them. And it has to be reasonable compensation. Reasonable compensation. And this is where, you know, years ago, I think that the the CEO of like United Way International got just hammered because he had a helicopter or something. I, I think that might be the story. This was like back in the 80s. And, and like, people were like, okay, that, that is totally not reasonable. That is, and, and that's where there's this sort of gray line of, of, or this gray area of like, what's reasonable compensation, what's not reasonable compensation, because you can see how easy, because there's no like clear way to say it, how easy it would be for somebody who's unscrupulous to say, you know, I'm worth $2 million a year because look how much money we raised. Right. And that's a really quick way to get the IRS to the IRS, state attorney generals, all of them to come, you know, bring their hammer and crush you forever. Right. So, so that's, that's where that, that comes in. But to the end, to specifically answer the question, yep, they could totally make a profit. Matter of fact, they should. If you don't, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You want, you want a, some extra revenue, right? So you have a rainy day fund or you have a reserve or whatever it is, or you, or you could reinvest in your programs or make, well, yeah, the basic <laughs> thing like making payroll, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny when you hear, um, sometimes you hear boards especially say, oh my gosh, we need a balanced budget. We can't have one that shows, you know, a deficit or a gain because, oh my gosh, we're not allowed to do that. And it's like, well, actually you can do that if you're doing it right. Thoughtfully, consciously, and like, there's a reason for it. So, yeah. And I think, you know, the second part of that question about how do nonprofits survive? So, I mean, I think that is another important part of that question. Right. And so, I mean, nonprofits survive obviously by, you know, hopefully um, generating revenue through whatever activities are going to, you know, work best for your nonprofit. And that's such a, that depends so much on the type of nonprofit. But I think, you know, 
whether it's, you know, individual donations or fundraising or special events, or you have earned income, like that, you know, Girl Scout cookie sales or whatever that is, like, you know, something that you're generating that revenue and that's how they survive. I mean, it, from a very financial perspective, right? Practical. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. We've got Stacy Wedding here. I'm Andy Shurek, and we're here to answer all of your burning nonprofit questions. Or no, if your nonprofit is burning, call 911, actually, <laughs> now that I say that. Um, one of the things I wanted to throw out, if you're listening to this and your organization is not an AND member, go do that right now. They're having a, you know, it's just the theme of the episode, fire. There's a fire sale right now. Um, it is basically, AND membership is half off. So it's usually $150 for your whole organization. It's now $75. And with that $75 that you save, you can buy a grant station membership. You can do all kinds of other fun stuff with that $75. So this is a really good time. If you're not an AND member or if you were previously an AND member and your membership has lapsed, go ahead and do it now because this is kind of the thing that I think they're just doing for fun right now. And I don't think it's going to happen again. So you can save $75 if you go onto the AND website, like seriously, stop the podcast, go do that. Come back. We'll be here. That is a great deal. Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J. Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you, Brenda J. Stout CPA. Thank you, Brenda. So some of you might recall in one of our prior episodes, Andy and I did a call out for questions of all kinds, including just really basic questions and maybe kind of nonprofit 101 questions. If you're just getting started, maybe you're thinking about setting up a nonprofit or you have a really small nonprofit or whatever stage of development your organization's at, there's never a question that's too small or too large. I mean, we certainly will try to tackle whatever we get. We'll do anything. Yeah, we'll do like, <laughs> what can we say? We just love your questions. So just send them to us, right? Anyway, so this question, someone, um, we, we thank the person who reached out because after we did the plug for sort of these nonprofit 101 questions, this person wrote in and said, I've got one. So here it is, Andy, I'm going to have you take this one. So uh, what are some of the most important things that employees who aren't the finance accounting person or department should know about accounting and budgeting? That's great. So from a, so let's take this from a nonprofit 101 stance, right? So say you're in a, an organization, you're brand new to the nonprofit sector, you're not really sure how things are different from maybe prior jobs that you've had or what things that you think should be important. So I think the first thing that, that just somebody in a line staff position or in a program position or maybe over in development or anything should sort of recognize about finance and accounting is that they're there. And we talked about this in a couple of podcasts ago, too, is this, there are really weird rules about accounting and finance. Um, which is why it attracts the kind of people that it does, right? Yeah. <laughs> With brains that like to keep track of like complicated yours. rules. <laughs> um, you weirdo. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the 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 first thing is that sometimes the the what the accounting team is asking you to do seems like it can be a waste of time, or that you don't understand why they're asking you to do something in a particular way. 
Um, and, and that's, I think the first thing that you kind of need to keep in mind is that they're usually not doing it just to be terrible or although, difficult or right. difficult, right? You know, there, there might be instances, really right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but in general, they're doing it because there is some sort of requirement somewhere that makes them do that. So one of the examples that, that we had, you know, we've had at a couple organizations is once you get to a certain size and you're doing grants, especially if you're doing state or federal grants, or even county city grants, sometimes they want to know how many hours you've spent on a particular project, which means you have to start doing timesheets. And if you've ever been through an organization that goes from, no, we've never had to do timesheets to now you have to Ugh. keep track of your time. So painful. It is like, it's like everyone just painful. literally catches on fire. Like, your eyeballs it's like out. the whole yeah. place is burning to the ground because why would I waste my time to do timesheets? And you just go through this and the accounting department never, like the, the finance person or whatever is never like, you know, Let's sit down. And I'm going to explain to you exactly the reasons that you have to do timesheets. And the reason is, is that we're never going to get this money again if we don't comply with their grant rules. Right. So so like timesheets is one example of one where like it sounds like what they're asking you is really arcane and abusive and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it really just is like they have to do it. That's just the, the rules. And in those cases, it's totally OK to ask, you know, to say like, you know, I see that you want us to do it this this way. Are there other options that don't waste a lot of my time or how can I help you get this information like in a slow drip instead of like, you know, once a month trying to sit down and remember what the heck I did for the last month or things like yeah. that. So there's always ways that you can kind of come back and say like, what's the best way for me to comply with your, with your super weird requirement you just gave me. So I think that's one. The second one is that the rules for nonprofits are different from the, the accounting rules, finance rules for nonprofits are different from the accounting rules and finance rules for, for profits. There, there's some very specific things that are different. Um, one of which is that the money can't be paid out a particular way. When a, when a donor gives your organization money, that money has to be used for the mission. Right. And, and there's specific rules about what that means. Like, so you can't, you can't do certain things. You can't get into these weird conflict of interest situations with your board. And that's what causes an awful lot of friction in a lot of nonprofits. It's like, what are the rules about that? So recognizing that, that the, what you may know from your previous job as whatever at a for-profit, like some of those rules are just not going to apply and you're going to have to open your brain a little bit and say, okay, explain to me why this is different here. Right. Explain to me why we can't do that this way here. Um, and then the other thing that I think, the, probably the third most important thing has to do with like recognizing what's important to track and what's important to to look at from the nonprofit pers nonprofits perspective versus a for-profit perspective or, or something that you may have brought from someplace else. So um, just pound for pound, if you compare a nonprofit and a for-profit to each other, if they're exactly the same, they make the same amount of money, they have the same number of employees, the nonprofit is going to be 10 times more complicated just because the rules are harder. Like right. nonprofits are way harder from a business perspective, which, you know, if, if I could like drill that into every board member's head, like even though this seems easy to you, it's actually 10 times harder than whatever stupid thing it is that you do. <laughs> so, so like cool off. <laughs> <All right? laughs> wow. I feel like some pent up anger and frustration oh there. Just the conflict, just the, the, that sense of, this is so off topic, that sense of like, well, you know, if you were smart, you wouldn't have gone into the nonprofit sector, right? Yes, like yes. if you'd known how to run a business, like, let me talk to you. What was they used to say? Like, you know, it needs to be more, you need to run your nonprofit more like a business, yeah. which is this one thing that just makes my, like. Your skin crawl. Yeah. Like you can see flames in my eyes all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, makes me so angry. But sort of recognizing that things are complicated. And, and even though it seems like you should be able to do it the easy way, like you have to do it the hard way sometimes. But 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 as far as a nonprofit is concerned, like you're not really concerned about um, sales and revenue and all that kind of thing. That's sort of the development department's job a lot of times is to like manage that entire sales process. 
and that you really need to stick to the budget. And then the budget is like the most important thing in the entire organization. And which is why in a nonprofit, you're going to get way more pressure than you will in a, in a comparably sized for-profit. You're going to get way more pressure to, to like say like, yeah, why can't I just like use the credit card and buy this on Amazon, right? right? right. Like, which is like a totally reasonable, rec- it's cheaper, it's faster. Yeah. Why do I have to do a purchase order? Exactly. Right. And it's because the budget is so important and that if you, if you run out of free cash, if there's not cash to pay you, like then you're, you're going to have a huge liquidity problem. You're not going to have any trouble. So like paying a lot of attention to the budgeting process, like, and, and taking it really seriously because a lot of places, especially in for profit, like in a, a for-profit that makes, you know, that does like between one and $10 million in sales, I guarantee you they don't do a budget. Right. They don't spend the time to do it. Every nonprofit does a budget and, and being um, really patient with that process and serious about it and like thinking through exactly what you want so that you're not constantly going to the finance team or the accounting team or whatever and saying, I know I said I needed this, but it turns out I don't. Can I move this over to here? Like that's a huge problem. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time and effort and you're going to get the stink eye and of you're going to get put on yeah. the naughty list, right? <laughs> so, so like recognizing that, the, so those are the three things like, rec- and the third one is recognizing that the budget is super important. Well, and I think with budgeting, it's also about finding, depending on the size of the organization, I think it's great when certain, st- you know, when staff or at least kind of management level staff are brought into the budgeting process. I'm always shocked at when you hear organizations where it's truly like the executive director and the board working on the budgeting process, right? Or the executive director and then presenting it to the board, but doesn't actually bring in anyone on the team. And that doesn't do, if you have a team where someone is leading a program or leading a development effort, I think that is a great opportunity to bring them in and, and help them understand the impact of thinking through, here's how you budget, right? Here's how you create a plan and then create, you know, a budget tied to that plan. And here's how those two go hand in hand. And it feels like that doesn't always happen. So I think that's another thing, having an organization that really tries to not shy away from sharing financials and the financial process with staff because they think it makes it this sort of unknown that no one understands. Yeah. Do, do you know why people do that? Do you know the, the, the reason that you see know. executive well, it sounds directors like you and do. boards? Oh my gosh. It's, it's totally clear the reason that people do that. Because if you do that, if it's the board and the executive director that are writing the budget, it's done. Yes. You write it. Oh, it's easy, right? It's finished. It's you're done. super easy. If you bring in staff, then all of a sudden you have to negotiate. It's an argument because the program team or the development team, the development team will say, you know what we really want to do? We want to do an acquisition mailing and it's going to cost us $12,000 or whatever number it is. Right. And then you have to bring that back to the board and argue with the board about why spending $12,000 on which you're going to see like pretty much zero return in year one, right? Yeah. Is going to be, is a, is a really important thing to do for this one year fiscal period. Well, so, so like you, by having it pulled only up to the totally. board and the executive director, you've taken all of the drama out of the, out of the budgeting process. And that's really attractive for somebody who just isn't into arguing with people about like whether or not something's important. Don't you think it's so a learning opportunity for, I mean, like, I feel like it's, a I don't think it's right. I, I think that's the wrong way. I mean, let, yeah. just to be clear, that's totally the wrong way to right. do it. <laughs> well, and I just feel like, I mean, because it's more about, it's less about the money. It's more about making decisions, right? Decisions about how you're going to use your time and what activities you're going to do in a year. And that is an invaluable process for anybody to learn. Mm-hmm. And it ties into the budget, right? Okay. So we want to have these five events. Well, guess what? When we do the cost analysis or really think through it, we can only do two of those events, right? It, it, like it really makes you sort of prioritize. I think it's, and then you own, like your staff owns that piece of the budget. Mm-hmm. And then I think, so here's my challenge to, to finance people who may be listening to this. 
I think as much as you can. So here's the thing. The people who are not in finance and accounting are probably, I'm going to assume, probably scared of numbers. Most people have some sort of like math phobia or like numbers (laughs) phobia. So I think the more finance people, and I realize this is probably non-traditional and most finance people can't do it, but my challenge to finance people would be if you could, if you could offer a little more explanation, I mean, yes, I, as a staff, who's not in your world can ask you questions, but if you can help me understand why that's important, that's great. Kind of like what you were sharing. Mm -hmm. And if you can do it in a way that isn't always tied to numbers. So if there's a way for you to use words, or I, I don't mean to be so mundane here, but like pictures or like, help me understand an example that, that I can wrap my brain around to understand. So it, it takes away the fear of the numbers piece of it and the terminology, the jargon. Can, can you give me an example? Uh, an example. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> like, so like when you're, like when you're, you're assembling the budget. Yeah. Like instead of making it like all like here's the budget with the numbers and the terminology and so don't send somebody an excel spreadsheet you're saying yeah like that's no the worst excel way to spreadsheet do it. like i think it's about having a conversation and sort of talking like in, in an ideal world a finance person would say to me so what are the things like you're hoping to grow with your program this year right and okay so um you know let's talk about like this is, you know, that cost a lot this year. And and where do you see like some of the, how are you going to generate money for that? Or how are you going to partner with development to generate money with that? Like, I don't know. It's, it's sort of less about here's a spreadsheet and, and charts and stuff that is going to overwhelm me and more about having a conversation. I think that's what I'm trying to get to. Like, how do you just have a conversation with me and then help translate that into numbers instead of just giving me a spreadsheet to start with, which I'm going to just shut down seeing that spreadsheet. <laughs> I'm being honest. I realize the finance people yeah. listening to this are rolling their eyes going, get over it. But for those of us who aren't like the spreadsheet people, it's, it's like heart palpitations, yeah. right? Like, I, and there's jargon, right? There's a lot of jargon, Andy, oh, in, yeah, the, in the industry. And so then it's That's also how like, we protect ourselves. Well, we protect ourselves with jargon. It is. So I think it's about having, like, if you can have, if we can have a conversation, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's something. And if I can find it, I'll, I'll, I'll give, we'll put the link on the show notes, but there's something I read, um, a year or two ago that was great. That was a finance person, a nonprofit finance person's approach to dealing with people in their organization that were not finance people. And they, he, he did this funny thing. Like he created a game out of it and he called it, um, I can't remember like poetry for non-finance people, but it was something that was like funny, but it got people laughing and comfortable with the sort of concepts that are behind the finance piece. So anyways, if I can find it, we'll include it. But I just think it's about, how do you, how do you talk? How do you communicate to me in a way I understand? Just like, you know, I probably need to learn how to communicate with you in a way you understand as a finance person, but how do we figure out that give and take? So each of us gets what we need. Yeah, that's, I think that's super good advice. And I think the hard part, like all the finance people that are listening, if any are are like, they're, they're thinking like, I don't have the time to do that. Right. And it's, it's impossible to put feelings in back into the spreadsheet. <laughs> there needs to be numbers involved at some point. So there's, but this, I mean, it's, it's really complicated, especially if you've got like the more, the bigger your organization is, the more complicated it is just the process of, of compiling the data to put it back into this. If you, if you roll it all the way out to all of your staff and have everybody work on it and then return something back to you, just the process of getting those numbers mashed back together and crammed into the spreadsheet so that there's sort of two way communication. Cause what you want to see, like, 
once the budget process turns into like, this is our budget, you're going to want to compare what's actually happening versus what you budgeted for, Yeah, which means that you need to have the numbers in a very specific way. So, I mean, there, there's software out there. You can pay a hundred thousand, hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year for software that does what you just said, like, and makes it easy for everybody and, you know, manages that whole process. Um, for again, for nonprofits, it's just like, it's like totally out of the realm of possibility. I know some very big nonprofits that I work with do use that kind of thing, yeah. but they're very, very big. Of course. So, so like, you know, the, I think the kind of meet in the middle and a lot of these things too, like the, I think best practice, absolutely. You're right. Is to involve staff during the budgeting process to make sure that everybody knows what, you know, what you're responsible for and give them a little more agency over what they're spending, mm-hmm. um, which is what, you know, kind of where we started on this one. But yeah, but that needs to be balanced with like, you know, we can't take a year to do the budget. Oh, of course, there, it does have to be balanced. And I also think maybe there's a way, even if, so maybe there's a happy medium, even with the spreadsheet. So if if the finance person could give, could structure the financials, so it's not just an overall total budget that I'm trying to figure out where my program or my part of the organization fits into that, but could be, it could break out the pre- the, you know, the financials by presenting kind of revenue and expenses by program so that I can see what, what matters to me, right? Like, I mean, it, it, like if I can see that my program that I manage and oversee, and I can kind of see clearly like the expenses are in revenue and tied to that, that's so much easier for me than seeing this like overall budget that I'm like, okay, so I, what does this mean? And where do I fit into this? Like, you know, so I also think it's kind of a presentation thing and sorry, finance people, you're probably again saying, stop giving me more work, Stacey. No, no. And I think you're, I think you're right. And, and like going through the process, especially as organizations grow, you know, you may start with a big monolithic budget. That's just like a single number. But then as, as the organization gets bigger and bigger, you break it into programs so that you can keep track of things a little bit better. It makes it more complicated. I think, unfortunately, I think we went from 101 to 601. I think we did. Oh, God. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry for those. Hey, here's a simple 101 concept. So I'm going to just I'm going to just say this one final thing. Like, here's the other thing. I think sometimes you get you'll hear an executive director say, you know, kind of poo poo the numbers, which is which is scary. Right. But I've heard executive directors say I'm not a numbers person. Right. Like, whatever. Just help help me figure it out. Um, that carries down staff feel that. Like, oh, yeah. So, right. So I think if you have an executive director or staff leadership that aren't sort of interested in financial info and sort of creating that culture of that, it's important and valued and you make a lot of decisions based on it. You, it sort of is this trickle down effect and then that just kind of makes that already sort of sensitive or, or like area that's fearful for people worse because it's like, oh God, well, the boss doesn't care. So why should I care? So I think it also is sort of, a, it really does also get influenced by top down on kind of the mentality and attitude around it and transparency around it. Yeah. And that's going to end your nonprofit faster and it's going to make everybody die of heart disease earlier. Yeah. That's just, that's not a way to run. No. What is the best way to raise money for a small nonprofit? Specifically, is it product fundraising, like selling cookies or other things, or is it asking for donations? I already know how you feel about events, so I didn't include that. Oh, <laughs> that sort of makes me sad. <laughs> I'm sorry to, to for our event hatred. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to use that as a piggyback, uh, to piggyback off of for this, so... And I am sharing this from a couple of nonprofits, both um, locally and not locally, that I have seen do this and do this marvelously. And this is sort of a spinoff of 
How about the non-event event? So there is such a thing, right, where you can send a postcard to your supporters, your friends, your family, whatever, your colleagues, whoever, you know, your small organization. I don't know how large your database is, but you send a little postcard or whatever and, you know, you keep it cheap and you just say, hey, instead of, you know, making you go rent a tux and, you know, waste your Saturday night eating a rubber chicken dinner. Like you can make it funny. And I think I've said this before, but I'm a huge believer in it. Like that you just say, Hey, instead of doing that, we're going to let you stay at home and chill with your friends and family. Mm -hmm. But what we're going to ask you instead is the money you would have spent, you know, getting a babysitter or for the tux or whatever. Like will you send us a donation instead and here's why we need it. And like, you know, keeping it short and sweet and kind of fun. I think, People appreciate it because let's be honest, I'm back to the events. Most people are cringing going, I don't want to spend my evening in an event. So make a fun play off that. Like that's one easy way that doesn't cost much money as a small nonprofit to raise money. I mean, and that's um, anyway, one idea out there. There's so many. And I think it depends a lot on kind of the type of organization you are too. There's some organizations that are probably easier to do something like that. I think like if you're a I, I, I use this funny example because I don't know of anything that exists like this, but there probably is someone somewhere like shoes for dogs, right? Like if you're shoes for dogs, whatever, something silly, but something <laughs> that like most people go, oh, shoes for dogs. So their little paws don't get burned or whatever <laughs> that case is, right? Like that's going to be a lot easier to probably sell something like that for than like an advocacy organization that people would be like, so like, you know what I mean? So I think some of this is coming back as a small nonprofit sort of really thinking about is there sort of a niche market? Like some organizations are better off going after grants because they're great at tracking info and showing impact. And some really have a harder time with that, but have really like something that pulls at the heartstrings. So that's maybe lends itself more to individual giving. I, so, so I think you have to start with kind of doing a little bit analysis of where is sort of the lowest hanging fruit for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And what, if you're going to start a regular business, and and for profits and nonprofits, nonprofits are just harder versions of regular businesses, right? If you're going to start a regular business, the first thing you do is you figure out what your business model is, which is like what what activities am I going to do that are going to generate money for me? Is right. it am I selling stuff? Is it you know what is it going to generate? What's going to generate money? The the only benefit that you get for being a nonprofit, the only well, okay, you get two two benefits. The first one is that gifts can be tax deductible. People can give you money and they can take a portion of their taxes off. This is way less important now than it was two years ago because yes. with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, we doubled the standard deduction, which changed the number of people that are itemizing their deductions. And the only way that you can actually get that tax write-off is to, and it's not even a tax write-off, it's just, it's an adjustment. The only way you can get that is to not take the standard deduction. You have to itemize. The percentage of people itemizing went from something like 20% down to like 6%. I know. So only 6% of the United States can even like benefit in right. any way from from itemize, from any charitable charitable donations from a tax perspective. So that's out the window yep. for the most part. For 94% of people, that's totally out the window. The only other thing is that psychic benefit that you get, that warm glow feeling that you get from participating in something that's a good or that's, that the mission is good. Mm -hmm. So, so if you, if you think that like exactly what you just said, just in different words, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that if you think that your mission is touchy feely enough that people are going to want to just give you money for no reason other than they like mission and they want you to do whatever it is that you said you're going to do, then yeah, lean more towards donations, individual yes. donations. 
if the mission that you're, if the mission of the organization doesn't resonate with the general public in such a way that people are just going to write you checks, you got to figure something else out. Yeah. So, and that's where the, all of these other activities, there's, there some sort of product component. Um, do you do events and, and, and let's, do you want to talk about events a little bit? Why we don't like events? I mean, it wasn't the question, but I think it's, it's kind of become it kind of a begs trope. Yeah. The- <laughs> As we just say it, it's like, oh, Stacey, and you don't like events. So can you maybe, maybe share why you don't like it? Oh God, I, we need an hour for that. But I mean, I think, um, <laughs> it's okay. I mean, think, I think one, right, is that the market is saturated. And so it is very hard to make yourself unique and stand out. I think two is most people don't have any clue, like they don't do enough thought about what is the goal of that event is the goal to you hear people say, Oh, I want to recognize people. I want to raise awareness and I want to like make some money. And it's like, okay, that's that. that, Anyway, there's a lot like it's, it's trying to bite off more than I think you just got to be like kind of realistic about what you're trying to do. And most of the time you're spending way more time and effort than you're getting a return. If you actually track your time. So I don't know. Those are three off the top of my head without even <laughs> continuing. Yeah. I think my, you know, as, as the finance guy, right. My, my general problem with events always was is that you're, you're spending an awful lot of time working on this and you might break even. Yes. So, like, if you're so the, lucky. The best events in the world, the best events make um, a, about 50% more than you spend. So then those are ones that have been, they've been doing it for years. They've got it down to a science. They've got an army of volunteers that are going to just jump in. They get a whole bunch of stuff donated. Like if you've got, if you've got the bodies and the clout to be able to pull something like that off, then it might be worthwhile. Um, the other reason that I don't particularly like them is, is exactly what you said is that I don't know what the focus is. Like, so like, I forget what, you know, like we keep talking about friend raising, right? Yes. Like it's just a friend raising event. It's like, so you're just talking about awareness. Yes. So you're going to do all this stuff. You're going to try to raise a little bit of money. You're going to spend money. You're going to end up with an awareness campaign that, that involves people having to come and do stuff. Yeah. Um, they're probably more cost effective and more um, like efficient and effective ways to do that. I mean, you can do an acquisition mailing yes. and make that your awareness piece. You do your acquisition mailing and then you've got them in your direct mail stream. So there, you have to think about what all of the bits and pieces are. And the reason that you want to do it has to be super clear. And, and I think, I think people default and we've talked about this too. People default to events because they think asking people for money is hard. Yes. And if they've got some, you know, if I'm going to feed you and give you drinks and there's a silent auction, maybe I can trick you into giving you <laughs> some money. Right. So, so if that's that, if that's, that's kind of the attitude. And a lot of times it's driven by board members who don't have the, don't have the skills to actually raise money because they've never been trained. Right. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's, that's probably my, my, my reluctance to, to advocate for events, but that's not to say that they can't be done well, or if you have a really good purpose for it, or there's something very specific about your event that makes it compelling and makes people want to go. I think if it is friend, a friend raising event, all I want to see that that doesn't I don't even actually know maybe one or two organizations I've ever seen do this that truly have a plan for after that event of how they're going to engage people that were at that event. So it isn't just one and done, right? Because, you know, like if there's nobody following up with anyone from that event and there's not any kind of outreach or other opportunity, then you really didn't do much. Like, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't think it's that, again, that whole long pipeline of how do you figure out like, okay, the event is one step in the process. Right. But back to, you know, like thinking of other things for for small nonprofits, like I think that small nonprofits have to rely on whatever networks they do have. And you can hear there's there's some stories and examples across the country and, you know, locally of 
organizations that have just tapped into peer networks for peer-to-peer fundraising, you know, whether it's, um, you know, someone who's championing your cause for you. So you're kind of taking your one person staff or your three person staff and extending it to 10 people who are out there trying to help you raise money for X, Y, Z. Like there is power in that. And there's numbers to show that there's a lot that can be done if you can get kind of extend your network beyond just the people who are doing the fundraising. So I think that would be another thing from a small nonprofit standpoint, you got to look at how do you kind of expand your bandwidth. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. We hope you had fun. Andy and I sure have a good time here. And uh, we hope you get some laughs and maybe learn a thing or two along the way. And listen, uh, there is a great sale going on right now, so you don't want to miss it. Uh, Friday, September 6th is the deadline, so get to it. Uh, Anne, Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, the producer of this Nonprofit Everything podcast, is actually having a great member sale. So you can become a member for a year at half off, 50% off. Instead of $150, $75, killer deal. They offer so many resources and so many opportunities throughout the year to learn more, to grow, and you know to connect with others in the industry. So don't, don't miss out. 